Hey, how are you? Hey, I am doing okay. I mentioned the last couple of episodes that I had a cold. I am finally over the cold. I feel like myself again, but I've infected the rest of my family and they're all down oh. and out. So This is uh, my least favorite thing about colds is when you start passing them around. And what should have been a very brief experience becomes this like season-long, lingering malaise. It's just so frustrating. Oh my gosh! Well, and it's it made even worse with this particular cold because I was down for thirteen days with this cold, and so the fact that everybody else is getting it as I'm getting better just means we have a whole month of this in our house. It's just awful. I'm so sorry. That's the worst. You just at least want it to overlap, right? Yes, right? Yeah. Let's all just go down at once. We'll all come back. It'll be fine. Yeah. But how are you? I am doing really good. We went camping this weekend and had a blast and uh, went to a concert and had a blast. And it was just a really low-key, chilled-out weekend. And that was a really good family experience. So I'm delighted to have had that weekend. Mm, That's good. That's soul restoring. It's amazing how deeply powerful just being in the woods is. I'm so grateful even for the inability to charge our devices except for when we're driving somewhere. It just forces a limitation on the amount people are on their screens. It forces us to not have a plan and just to kind of float through the days. And all of that is really good for me. Wow, that sounds great. What a good weekend. Yeah, I was thrilled. But uh, are you ready to dive into a very tough chapter with Miroslav Volf? Oh, man. I sure hope so. I'm actually, in some ways, looking forward to this conversation, in some ways, dreading it, both for the same reason. This was so hard. Uh, Just to give the listeners some insight into how this prep is going for us, we're each individually listening to the audiobook and saving clips as we go along, like, oh, that's important, that's important, that's important. And then I'm going back, I think you're doing a very similar thing. And taking all those clips and then translating them into highlights or underlines in the actual physical book. And then I'm taking those underlines and physically writing out an outline beyond that to capture all my notes and my thoughts and organize them. And so it's hours of prep. And I still don't know if I've got a full handle on this chapter. No, absolutely. And I say this particularly for our friends who are reading this with us, I feel like Miroslav Volf has the ability to let you get something out of every chapter, regardless of how deeply into the material you're going. So if you're just sort of skimming it once, you know, if you're the person who's listening to this on uh, 1.15 speed on Audible, that's totally okay, and you're going to get something out of it. If you're the person who wants to like listen to it twice and outline and all of that, you're going to get something else out of it. 
And so I love the fact that Volf can be read on a series of different levels, but I agree with you. I think the more I dig into each chapter and the deeper the level that I'm interested in going, the more I realize Volf has some deep and incredibly profound things to say, but his structuring of the chapter really takes some effort for me to follow. Mm. And I think that's one of the big challenges for me, is he's trying to articulate some very intentional, careful thoughts, and he's weaving some philosophical thoughts with some Bible thoughts into one thing, wrestling with a host of very complex and intelligent thinkers, and trying to do all of that in order to get us all somewhere. And that is just a heady, heady journey. Yes. So if I zoom way out, and if I just take a look at the whole landscape of this chapter, I would say, so he's titled this chapter Exclusion. And this is his exploration of what it means to exclude, why we exclude, and what the solutions to our tendency to exclude really are. And rather than talk about this on a systems level, which he occasionally does, but primarily he's really concerned with what's going on within me, what's going on within the self that motivates and perpetuates this tendency to exclude the, quote, other. Mm -hmm. Is that a reasonable summary from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly it. It's why is there this tendency? What does that tendency look like? And what are the alternatives? Seem like the things he's wrestling with me. Uh, at some point, he uses this word dynamics of exclusion. And I really appreciated that. I think that's what he's wrestling with throughout the chapter is, is what are the dynamics at play here? Uh, again, one of the great little moments that I absolutely loved was when he said that we are curiously unwilling to take a stand against evil. We are curiously non-resistant. And so he asks mm. the question, why is that? But to back up, I think the first thing he really is trying to say is, as a culture, we claim to be inclusive and we are not. Hmm. This was one of the things that I loved about the chapter. He did not rail against inclusion. In fact, I think he argues for a radical sense of inclusion. But what he does articulate is the false assumptions inherent within our culture about what inclusion means. And the tendency, and I see this a lot in the places that I spend my time, in my cultural space, I see this all the time, the tendency to push inclusion, 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 inclusion. We just have to include more. We have to be open to more people. We just have to include, include, include. And he says, basically, there's two problems with that. One, we either inadvertently create new boundaries and new senses of what it means to be moral. And in this case, I would say the new boundary is anybody who is open and inclusive is the righteous one. And anybody who 
whoever excludes in any way is the unrighteous one. Mm. So we've defined, we've redefined what it means to be moral around this idea of inclusion. And he says, so there's one tendency is to inadvertently create a new boundary around who is in and who is out, who is the us and who is the them. And Mm -hmm. the other is the inverse, trying to escape that. And so therefore, we knock down more and more and more boundaries all the way to the point of, well, then nobody lands anywhere. There's no boundaries whatsoever. We're all just kind of free floating and everything is permissible. There's no walls among anybody and everything is fine. And he says like both dangers are an absolute problem and they're inherent within this idea of inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as he gets ready to wrestle with this idea of, okay, what do we mean by exclusion? I don't know if it stuck out to you, but it stuck out to me that he offers us a test for a successful understanding of exclusion. He says that any understanding of exclusion must, number one, allow us to call exclusion evil, and number two, must allow us to see the exclusionary tendencies within ourselves. Yes. And so I'm curious to hold on to that as we wrestle through the rest of what he said to see if what he offers us actually lives up to that test. Mm. I completely agree. And so to reiterate that test, and I think it's a great litmus test for whether or not he's successful in this chapter. So that test is, one, we have to be able to name evil and name exclusion and all of the exclusionary practices as evil. So in other words, we have to land somewhere. There have to be some boundaries. And two, those boundaries have to not blind us to our own evil and our own sinfulness. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciated this. It's funny. I know I mentioned that this structure of this chapter was confusing to me, but in certain senses, it resonated a lot. When I was in high school, I was an avid debater, and the basic outline of every debate was the same. You state your thesis, you define your terms, you make your argument. And I feel like that's the thesis. And then he goes into this, uh, what feels to me like a good solid quarter of the chapter, in which he wants to define some terms that could all very easily get lumped into the exclusion bucket. And he wants to differentiate them. Uh, and I, <laughs> one of which was differentiation, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. That's, that's what I was going to key into. I was like, oh, that's a perfect segue. You're looking for a Segi award now. Ooh. Uh, I can hear the music behind me as I receive my Segi award. <laughs> but, yeah. So what did you think of this terms segment that he did? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, this idea of differentiation, I mean, this is really powerful in terms of psychology and counseling and stuff too. Each person needs to be their own individual person. That is an absolute must. We have to have an identity. We have to have an idea of what it means to be who we are. So the self is important, but the self can never be removed from an interdependence with other people. 
I depend on you as my friend to be part of what it means to be me. Part of who I am is I'm friends with Josh from Missouri. Part of who I am is I am Shelly's husband. I am my kid's dad. All of these things, these relationships. So we need the other. And so there is this idea of differentiation. I am me, but I am me in relation to others. And that's differentiation, not exclusion. Exactly. Yeah. And so I love how he uses that to then jump into sort of what exclusion is. Exclusion then is either A, cutting the bonds that exist between us. So I'm trying to kind of reject you, or I'm trying to exist independently of you, or it's the erasure of the separation, right? You can only exist if I absorb you. Right. I just thought that was a really interesting way of saying, okay, we've got to understand that differentiation is important and different from exclusion, but it gives us a basis for identifying what exclusion actually is. Yes. And then he introduces a term that our society is really uncomfortable with, and it's this idea of judgment. And this is the wherewithal to call evil, evil, wherever you find it. And he spends a lot of time uncovering our own self-deception in this regard and our tendency to see evil only in somebody else and not within ourselves, or to start labeling things as good or evil based on our preferences rather than some objective standard. But this idea of judgment still plays a role, and we have to be able to name evil wherever it is. Uh, This is getting ahead of ourselves, but I feel like later in the chapter, he basically says that's what victims require. Victims don't require some kind of detached, almost ironic stance of, oh, isn't that interesting that we disagree? No, there's an objective standard, and what that person did to me was evil. Victims need people to stand up and say, no, that is wrong, period. And so there has to be some level of judgment. It's just required. Yeah, exactly. And as he wrestles with these three things, differentiation on the one hand, judgment on the other hand, and exclusion as sort of the warped middle ground between the two almost. I love the fact that he goes from there to then asking, okay, with all of that in mind, if that's how we relate sort of outside of ourselves, he then turns inward and says, okay, but how do I relate to myself? And he he raises this idea of the centered self. And I was really curious as you were reading what you thought about that idea. I loved this idea because he did some really important things in this section, and it's so central to who we are as Christians. And I feel like if we get nothing else right, we have to get this right. Because our center, our very core of our identity as Christians is Christ. Christ has dethroned our own sense of self as the center and replaced it with himself. And as he talked about in the last chapter, Jesus is a self-giving Messiah. That is the type of God that we serve, is this idea of self-donating or self-giving. And now that we have placed Christ as our center, we live 
out of his central identity. And he says this on page 65, which I just love. The result of this is our new center opens the self up. It makes it capable and willing to give itself for others and to receive others in itself. Mm -hmm. I highlighted the exact same thing. Yeah, because only the self-giving love of Jesus makes that possible for us. Yeah, the fact that, again, this is the decentered center, right? I just love this idea. My identity is no longer the center of my sense of being. That is a really profound idea. It's not that I don't have a sense of being. He uses the word erased. It's not that my sense of self is erased. It simply isn't the center of all that I am or do. Something else has become the center of all I am and all I do. And I think that's brilliant because if I am not the center of my own sense of self, if someone disagrees with me, I can view that sort of objectively. If someone takes a different stance than I do or comes against me in opposition to where I stand on something, I can sort of look at that objectively as if it were happening to somebody else. And I think there is something really powerful about that. Not yeah. to say this is easy, by the way, or that I have mastered this. I'm not trying to claim <laughs> success here. I'm just observing, I think, the practical outcomes of what he's talking about and what it offers us that almost nothing else could possibly offer. Right. And I love that he qualified this a couple of pages later because he so boldly says this. Speaking of Jesus, he said he was no prophet of inclusion, which is mm. awesome because I think we get to this point and we say, oh, so the self-giving love of Jesus becomes our new center. And out of that, we are able to include others. We're able to self-donate for others. And that's that's who we become. So our society was right all along. It's just Jesus makes inclusion possible. So inclusion, inclusion, inclusion is still the answer. We just have to do it with a little bit of Jesus. And I love how he goes on here. He says he was no prophet of inclusion, but he goes on to make the point that it's not like Jesus just included everyone. Yes, he, he scandalously allowed anybody to come and have communion with him. But he also, as he says, made the, quote, intolerant demand of repentance and the, quote, condescending offer of forgiveness. This isn't just include, include, include. This is, we live by Jesus's rules now, and we have to owe our allegiance to him. That's a demand on us. Absolutely. Well, and I love the way he sets side by side two options that we have as sort of religious people, one being the purity option, where we are trying to be defenders of purity, and then the other option, which he calls solidarity in sin. I just loved this, that his claim is that if we try to be defenders of purity, we will either try to eliminate what is evil in others rather than focusing on ourselves, or we will try to assimilate the evil. We'll try to make those people like us, again, missing the evil in ourselves. 
or we will abandon the evil. We'll sort of ignore it or ghettoize it, using language to sort of minimize it, and again, building ourselves up. His overall argument is that if you try to defend purity, what you end up defending is your purity. Whereas if you embrace the grace of Jesus, you get to enter into a solidarity in sin that acknowledges victims and perpetrators have all sinned. You and I have both sinned. My group and your group, everybody has sinned. And not only that, but even if I am watching a conflict, even if I'm watching you two other people sinning as an activist or an onlooker, even I have sinned. So the sin is pervasive, and therefore I get to stand in this place of solidarity and sin. We all stand together, not because our sins are equal, but because we are all tainted by sin, far more than we recognize. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that last part. I love this idea of solidarity and sin, and that we all come at this from a broken place. We all come at this with blood on our hands. None of us show up to the fight, even observers. None of us show up to the fight without some guilt. But I wanted to ask you about this idea of not all sins being equal. I have heard sermon after sermon after sermon that says, a sin is a sin is a sin. It's all evil. It's all sinful. God doesn't rank sins. But Wolf very unapologetically says, no, no, no. Sin might be sin, but we can't ever pretend that sins are equal. What was your thought on that? No, I really appreciated this. I wish he had argued for it more, but I absolutely appreciate this. First of all, because I think that equal is a silly concept here. We're trying to compare things that aren't comparable as if all sin is sort of like a you know, if there's like a radon reader that the meter on it kind of starts at zero and goes up to 100. And if you get close to the right, you know, it might hit 15 in one spot and 35 in another spot and 65 in another spot. As if fundamentally what we're talking about when we talk about sin is how much of it is present. I think what's far more important to ask is how much has the original thing that was here been corrupted by the sin that is present? And so you're not comparing one sin to another as if I were supposed to compare the damage done to this painting compared to the damage done to that sculpture. I'm comparing the damage done to this painting with the original painting because that's what sin is. It's a corruption. Mm. The painting and the sculpture helped a lot in helping me understand what you were saying. I think what you're saying is if you take the original pristine image of what the thing should have been, the way we measure sin or the violation of that painting is how altered is it from the original based on our actions? Yes, as opposed to how altered is it compared to this other thing that is also altered. So if I'm looking at like adultery, I need to compare it to healthy, fulfilling, transformative, monogamous marriage, not lying. And if I'm looking at lying, I need to compare it to 
the power of the truth spoken in love and gentleness and kindness. I don't need to compare it to whether or not it's the same or different level of corruption compared to murdering somebody. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'll tell you, I appreciate what you're saying. You have to just take the individual thing and evaluate it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. The real world example that comes to mind for me is working at 911. I was just talking about this with somebody the other day. This is like, you know, not a great moment of mine, but, you know, there's some times you hang up a 911 call and you go, you know, dude, I know you're reporting an assault, but I got to say, if I were there, I'd have done the same thing to you. <laughs> like, I don't want to blame the victim. That's not what I mean. I'm saying, like, Yes, we need to come and take an assault report from you, but dude, I hope you can also see you you own a piece of this. Like you have some sinfulness and some issues you need to work on too. Absolutely. Um, and it's yes. really easy to see when you have two third parties, right? You mm-hmm. look at, okay, you shouldn't have assaulted him and you shouldn't have done all the things that led up to the assault. Okay, great. We understand that. But when we have to like turn the mirror inward and evaluate our own stuff that we're often blind to, That, I think, is what Wolf is really trying to hammer home in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is where I think he gets into some of the systemic comments about the world in which we live that I found to be, honestly, the most heavy stuff in the chapter. Uh, At one point, when he's talking about the systemic reality of sin, he says, There is a background cacophony of evil that permeates our institutions, our communities, our nations, even whole epochs, and our very selves have been shaped by the climate of evil in which we live. Evil has insinuated itself into our very souls and rules over us from the very citadel erected to guard us against it. That is heavy and honestly a little scary. I found that whole section to be scary as well, especially when we start naming all of those forces and those so-called mm-hmm. guardians of our society that play a role in this. He puts quotations around every single one of these titles, but he calls certain groups historians that go back and tell us a beautiful picture of what used to be and what we're clearly losing out on now. Mm-hmm. And quote, economists who come in and say, oh, look at Look at all the things that we stand to lose financially because of this situation. And you have political scientists that bring their slant and cultural anthropologists that bring their slant. And then you have politicians that like whip this up into a frenzy. So everybody gets scared about everything that's happening and we have to change that. And I'm the only one you can elect in order to change that. And then I thought this was really indicting. He has these quote unquote priests, these people who give a moral blessing on all that has been said by all these other people. And they kind of bring God into it. They slap God's approval on all of this rhetoric. And now we have all the pieces working in concert. And now the stage is set for exclusion to happen on a massive scale because all of the guardians of our society agree and have added their voices in their own way to say, this is who we should exclude. Well, and then at some point, the concept of choice becomes less than realistic because we have bought in and bought in and bought in 
until we have sacrificed our ability to think differently. And I'm not saying we're not culpable. I'm just saying we're stuck in that we are stuck because we have participated in systems that blind us. And so we are more culpable than we realize, more sinful than we realize, more sinful than we could possibly realize. Therefore, again, coming back to this earlier idea, desperately needing to stand in the place of solidarity and sin and take the grace approach rather than the purity approach. Because if we take the purity approach, we don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. This is where I wanted him to draw his conclusion more starkly. But I believe his solution is Jesus. All right, not to be too Sunday school answer about it. But I believe his solution is, as we said before, making Jesus the center of our identity and allowing his truth to set the stage for how we operate in the world both how we view ourselves and how we view the, quote, other, and how we make space for the other. So I think his attempt to resolve this in a way that fits his own standard, again, his standard was, we have to be able to name exclusion as evil because living a non-excluded existence is possible. And Whatever standard we adopt cannot blind us to our own sinfulness. And I think that is the model of Christ. Christ said, hey, you have to come to me by saying, I am a sinner in need of grace. You have to submit yourself to me, allow me to become the center. And when I become the center, you will be aware of both your own sinfulness and the sin that exists elsewhere in the world simultaneously. Yeah, I think, I don't know that he goes quite that far, in part because we're only in chapter three. I don't know that he offers that clear a conclusion. No, I don't think so either. I'm trying to read between the lines of what is there to say, I think that's his conclusion. Well, and I, yeah, and I don't think he gives that a conclusion yet. I think that's the whole next chapter, right? This is the exclusion chapter. (laughs) The, The next chapter is the embrace chapter. Really, it feels to me like on some level, the final conclusion he makes is about what causes exclusion, not how to not cause exclusion. So if I were to summarize the conclusion that I think he makes at the end of the chapter, I think it's this idea of assertiveness versus violence, where he says something to the effect of the formation and and negotiation of our identity requires assertiveness, that is to say, We have to draw our own boundaries as we seek to clarify our own identity. But the moment we transgress other people's boundaries in order to establish our own identity, that's where we go from the idea of assertiveness to the idea of violence. And violence is always exclusionary. And then I feel like he drops it in the chapter. That's it. Yeah. And that was my main personal takeaway from all Mm. of this is my own tendency to define myself in such a way that I have to exclude certain others. Or I have a a conception of what is moral or pure or right or godly. And when other people don't 
fit that model or people, I really appreciated this, this insight that the other, whoever that is for you, they act and behave in ways that you don't want them to. They challenge you. They, mm-hmm. They're either mean or they're inconsiderate or they are attacking you or I don't, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Like they bother you and you have to define yourself in such a way that you can make room for the other. And that only comes with Jesus, the self-giving one at the center. And that, that to me is my main try to like, try to work this into your daily life, please kind of takeaway. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely my takeaway is, is very, very similar. It's when I have these moments where I recognize the tendency towards exclusion of any particular group of people or any individual, my first response has to be to look internally and ask, not what does this tell me about them, but what does this tell me about me? Mm -hmm. Because exclusion tells me about my sense of identity and the ways in which I want to maintain my sense of identity. And I, I think that's fascinating and really powerful stuff. And I'm, I'm really excited, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening to the book with us, this is a two and a half hour chapter on exclusion. Uh, this coming week's chapter on embrace is three and a half hours. So he has a lot to say on the opposite side of the scales to explore his second half of this image that he's working off of, of exclusion and embrace. And I'm so interested to hear about both of these ideas, what other people are getting as they read. You know, the whole heart of this is that my identity is formed in relationship to other people as they're forming their identity. What are you seeing in this? I am confident, both in my conversation with Josh from Oregon and the conversation we both look forward to being in with all of you, that we are going to see more in this book as we communicate and talk about it together. So we are really looking forward to you sharing your thoughts about what you think is really important in this chapter. Yeah, by all means. And then if you found this episode or any of our other episodes to be something that would bless somebody else, please feel free to send this along. I would imagine, though, that if uh, I think this conversation is very much embedded in the entirety of this book. And so maybe you want to pass along this series. Uh, But at any rate, uh, we invite you to share this uh, with a friend and keep the conversation going. Yeah. You know, better together. Exactly. And, you know, maybe listen to this series and read the book with a friend of yours. Meet every week for coffee with somebody and you share your thoughts with them as you're reading it and listening. And you're absolutely right, Josh. We are better together. Well, man, I don't know if you have room in your brain for any other thoughts, but if there's anything else rolling around in there, I would love to know, Josh from Missouri, what else have you been thinking about this week? You know, I have had on my mind the story, I think it's in 2 Samuel 24, where the king is corrected for taking a census. God is simply bothered by 
the fact that the king counts his people. What's interesting to me about this is that my entire adult life, I have been responsible for counting things. In church, as a number two person, I have counted how many people show up church, how many people show up to Bible studies, how many people show up in ministry, how many people are serving, uh, all sorts of things. On our podcast, we count very regularly how many people listen to the most recent episode that's launched. We culturally subscribe to this idea that you measure what matters. And as I look at this story, and I look at the ways it's read by my American peers, there is a clear effort to justify counting things in general in order to make sure that this is not a forbidding of counting. (laughs) And as I note how much I like to count stuff and how quick I am to work hard, not to explain what the story says, but what it clearly must not say, I started to wonder, am I working just a little too hard? And I'm asking myself, does it say what I don't want it to say, and should I count less? Mm. And I don't have an answer to that. And I'm I'm not trying to prescribe an answer for everybody else. I'm just wrestling with the fact that maybe this is a text that is easy to write off because obviously it couldn't possibly mean that because everybody does that. (laughs) I love your general question, though. I think it's so important in reading the Bible, if we asked ourselves that question every time we read a text, does this mean what I don't want it to mean? Wow. We would wrestle with the text in a brand new way if we always asked, does this mean what I don't want it to mean? Yeah. And like I said, I don't have an answer, but I I think you're right. I think that's the question I want to be asking. Hmm. And that's all I've got. That's profound. What about you? What have you been thinking about? Well, now I'm thinking about how often I check our podcast stats, but right. uh, beyond that- I'll tell that, you right now, I'm going to ask you about them as soon as we stop recording. So I'm clearly not convinced of anything yet, but I am wrestling with it. But anyway, what are you thinking? Yeah. About? Well, to answer your question early, uh, we've gone viral. We have 8,000 listeners about every hour. Um, wow. We're going to be on the Today Show probably next week. Awesome. That's exciting. Uh, well, thank you all of you for sharing- uh, that's a lot of sharing <laughs> that you're doing. Uh, okay. Uh, what am I really thinking about? So I'm reading a book by Sandra Richter, who's an Old Testament scholar that you and I both really love. Mm-hmm. And I picked up a, her book, Epic of Eden. Have you read this? Ooh, I haven't. Uh, it is on my list of eventual reads, but I haven't read it yet. All right. I knew nothing about it other than it was Sandra Richter. And I was like, okay, done. I will listen to this. I will say for every listener out there, this is a wonderful book. It's accessible to literally everybody. She takes the Old Testament story and she just acknowledges straight out of the gate. A lot of Christians don't understand the Old Testament. We don't spend a lot of time reading it. We know a few key Bible stories from the Old Testament, and that's kind of it. We're lost in a world of dates and geography and names and people and events that we really don't 
grasp. And she just acknowledges that straight out of the gate and just says, let me help put it together. Let's just take it piece by piece. I absolutely think we can all understand this. It's really not that hard in the end. Let me just walk you through it. And man, does she just do a great job of laying out all the things. Like, I don't even want to list the things because it sounds overwhelming to the listener. It's not overwhelming at all. She does such a great job. But by the end of it, you understand geography, you understand history, you understand key names, you understand key dates, you understand the theology of the Old Testament, what it was speaking to. You understand things like covenant, and you understand things like grace and judgment and all of these things. I'm just in awe of taking some really high-level good theology stuff and putting it at the everyday, a high schooler could pick this up and totally dig this book it's it's really, really good. I just love what she's doing. For anybody who has an Audible subscription, this is one of the books that is free on Audible if you're a subscriber. Yes, and that's how I'm listening to it. That's awesome. I love her, and this book has been on my must-read list for quite a while, but I haven't gotten there. So I'm excited to know that it is worth the wait. It is. I For you with your seminary training and education, a lot of this is going to be review. There's a few things I've picked up that I'm like, oh, I actually didn't know that. But the writing is beautiful. The way she communicates deep theology and history and geography in ways that are just accessible. I'm learning from her style as much as I'm learning from her content. Absolutely. Well, and this is when I have listened to her First of all, her content has been phenomenal. But second of all, her ability, as you've said already in this conversation, her ability to communicate complicated things in engaging ways, I absolutely work on learning from her style as well as her content because she is uh, not just a first-rate scholar, but a first-rate communicator as well. And you don't get both of those every time. No, no, for sure. Well... From the heights of scholarship Ooh. to the depths of, what what do you say? Banality? Is that how Banali- you usually say banality? this? Banality? Yeah, maybe. That sounds like something I would say. Triviality? Well, unimportantness? Banality is certainly all of those things. But at least we're in keeping with the season today as we launch into today's Witch Josh question. Today's Witch Josh question is, which Josh hates candy corn. Oh, that's so me. I detest that's candy so corn. Oh, I there was a meme that went around a while back. I just love three steps to eating candy corn. One, open the package. Two, dump the contents into the trash. Three, eat a Reese's. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. So yes, I hate candy corn, but my kids love to pester me with that. And they try, like every Halloween, it's like a contest to see who can distract dad with his mouth open for just three seconds and I can shove a candy corn in his mouth. That's the little game they play and it's pretty torturous. That's hilarious. Hey, every family needs a game and that's a perfect Yeah, so if you've got a good one, tell me. (laughs) Or more likely tell his kids so they'll stop doing that. (laughs) Right. But, oh man. Well, are we on for next week? You know, as long as I can get through the chapter, yes. Absolutely. 
Man, this has been heady. Perfect. All right. Well, I am so glad I get to debrief it with you because I think uh, we are both getting a lot more out of it that way. I 100% agree. So until next week, have a good one. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.